Today, on the Ward Preacher Podcast, God hath not given us the fear of deilias, roots of evils and perilous times, and the most controversial of all Paul's teachings. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Ward Preacher Podcast. Right today, our Come Follow Me curriculum brings us to First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Um, we will be focusing mostly on First and Second Timothy. Uh, there's a lot of stuff here. Uh, some of the counsel that he gives to Titus is repeated from some of the counsel that he gives to to Timothy. And, uh, and Philemon is worth reading, but I will leave that for your independent study. Um, let's go ahead and get started. There's a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 that reads as follows, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, This passage has been used by some to claim that fear, even fear of the Lord, is bad. The English translation of the word deilias is rendered fear in the King James Version. But it's not the same word as phobos, which is used to describe fear of the Lord in other places in the New Testament, such as Philippians 2 that we talked about um, a, a couple weeks back. Uh, Deilias uh, implies cowardice. And that gives us kind of a new perspective for this counsel from Paul. In other words, we could say, God has not given us the spirit of cowardice, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, Of course, what this means is that we should absolutely worry that our actions may threaten our relationship with God. But we should be less concerned with what others think of us. The spirit that we should have should reflect the qualities that God seeks to develop inside of us. Power, love, and this this last word comes from the Greek sophronismo, which can be translated as discipline, wise discretion, self-control, or in the King James Version, of a sound mind. So uh, that's also an important uh, context that we can get from that. He's talking about uh, being disciplined. Uh, having the courage to do what's right. Uh, This is the sort of idea that Jesus taught when he said, the light of the body is the eye, and if thy eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. In other words, when we focus on the source of all of these qualities, our bodies will be filled with light. It will propel us toward reaching a divine potential. But if we focus anywhere else, if we are afraid, uh, 
if we are not being filled with that power and love and discipline, our body will be filled with darkness. We don't have any light ourselves, and there's only one true source of light. We need to do whatever it takes, no matter what other people may be doing or how we may look. We need to pay the price to do what is right. When we think about it, no one praises cowards. Take courage. Do what is right and let the consequence follow. All right. Roots of evils and perilous times. Here's a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, part of this, I think, is very famous. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, some aspects of this idea are obvious. When you prioritize money above morality, that's bad. You can look to the Book of Mormon, for example, secret combinations in which people ultimately killed or robbed to get gain. They prioritized money above morality. It nearly destroyed both of those civilizations multiple times and ultimately was the cause of uh, the destruction of both of these societies. That was all based on that. Jesus counseled that when we prioritize uh, money, we should first seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, some other aspects of this counsel are less obvious. For example, a person who glorifies themselves as being generous is artificially inflating the value of the money that they give. Look at me, and look at what I'm donating, and here's a gigantic check that I'm providing to this charity because I'm great. Jesus counseled not to give alms to have the glory of men, not to sound a trump before us uh, as we as we pay our tithing, not even to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Um, because money doesn't last, and loving that more than loving what really matters, uh, it's not going to lead to happiness. This is the consequence that Paul describes when he talks about they pierced themselves through with many sorrows, because you cannot buy the things that are most important. Now, uh, let's move to another passage. This is some counsel about uh, the last days, the perilous times, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which reads, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such 
turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, there's a lot to break down there. Let's start with this uh, phrase, without natural affection. When you look in the footnote, it points to Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, probably through 28 too, which condemns homosexual behavior, uh, plainly condemns this behavior. But the Greek term that's used in this passage, astorgoi, uh, that's used in, uh, in 2 Timothy, it's not used in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 26 and 27. This implies unloving. So, are these connected? Could they be talking about homosexuality? Could that be implied here? I think if we look at the context of the string of terms that is given by Paul here, a lot of these start with the alpha character, uh, implying not for each of these. Um, and so it, there's a, a poetic element to this list that's provided that's lost in translation. Uh, you can look at this a little bit differently when you understand that. Implacable, slanderous, without self-control, savage, without love of good. That's an equally applicable translation of that same list in verse 3. And we can get the understanding that this sort of idea includes this type of natural affection, uh, homosexuality, as well as any other perversion that is meant to avoid being bound by covenant. That's like implacable, covenant-breaking, slanderous. That's uh, interpreted as false accusers, or it could mean dishonest without self-control, which in the King James Version is incontinent, but could also imply impulsive, savage, which in King James is interpreted fierce, but could be anything that's brutal. All of these types of behaviors can be lumped together in this list, and certainly that falls into the same category. These behaviors that people uh, perform in, where they're giving in to their impulses, are not good. And what does it lead to? He describes despisers of those that are good. These are the types of people who attack the prophet and apostles for not being Christ-like and nonsense like that. They're the type of people who rush to judge people that have standards as being judgmental and not able to see their own hypocrisy. They can even have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Some of these types of people worship a single attribute, a concept like love or peace, or law, or wrath, or any other single attribute, or a tiny collection of attributes that they relate, or makes them feel like they can relate with God, um, instead of actually worshiping God, who deals appropriately 
with justice and mercy and in every circumstance. They deny the full power of how he uses all of these things. Um, and then that last sentiment, I think that's really powerful. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. If we look carefully throughout the scriptures, we can see the same efforts that were used to attack followers of the Lord in ancient times are the same ones that are employed throughout time, even today, using clever fact-containing attacks that don't represent the entire truth. Satan tells Eve that she can partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because it will make her as the gods, knowing good and evil, which is a fact, but it doesn't present the truth. Korah tells Moses that he takes too much upon himself, seeing that all the congregation is holy and that the Spirit of God can be upon all of them, a truth that well, a fact, rather, that does not imply, does not actually lead to the truth, which is that they still needed to follow God's mouthpiece, Moses, and it did not end well for those who rebelled against him. The priests of King Noah telling Abinadi, Oh, but, you know, Isaiah writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who publish peace. And you're out here telling us that if we don't repent, we'll be destroyed. That's not what God said here in the scriptures. That's not what Isaiah said. Using a fact in the scriptures that doesn't convey the full truth. Of course, Abinadi used it in context in a very profound way, and that is definitely worth reading. The Pharisees point to laws about Sabbath day observance to attack Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. And today, you'll find people who will tell you things even based on truth about Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, perhaps even living prophets and apostles, and doctrines and policies. There may be facts in some of these accounts, but they miss the truth that these men are actually called of God by selectively ignoring or dismissing a large number of other facts that might lead you to the entire truth. They will tell you not to pray or that some sources of information can't be trusted, only theirs. Uh, I think that, that uh, Paul's counsel particularly applies here. Yeah, avoid these people. From such, turn away. All right, finally, let's talk about the most controversial of all of Paul's teachings. Let's go ahead and read it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence 
with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. That's the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. This passage that, uh, that I read through is used by some to suggest that because Paul said this, nothing else that Paul ever wrote should be believed. How could he say this, this sexist thing? That's right there in the Bible. Therefore, everything else that he says that we don't like, we can just say, eh, we don't like it. It doesn't count. It raises some important questions. Why did he say this? And I think it's important that we point out, since I've done a lot of this uh, looking at the Greek to get a better context for understanding uh, what's going on, this isn't a bad translation. Uh, that we can say, oh, you know, in actuality, it could be translated this way. No, the, the Greek words actually indicate that women should be in quietness and not to use authority over a man. That is exactly what it says. So what's going on here? Well, certainly, as with a lot of the counsel that comes from prophets and apostles, there is an element that is particularly applicable to the time in which they are living. That's true of this council. Um, if we kind of bring in another passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul counsels bishops um, to take special care for widows that are 60 years old or more, but to refuse this sort of care for younger widows to avoid the tendency for them to become, quote, idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers too, and also busybodies speaking things which they ought not, end of quote. That's First Timothy 5.13. Uh, and he goes on and talks about, uh, you know, what should they be doing? They should be fulfilling their most important role, which is in a family. In ancient society, that was really all that women were empowered to do. They, they were not empowered to do a lot, except for fulfilling that most important role, which is being a wife and a mother in a family. Those relationships are more important to society than anything else. Now, in modern times, quietness is no longer as important. It's okay if you go to church and you see a woman give a talk, or teach a lesson, or say a prayer. All of that's okay. Uh, since women, even who are not wives and mothers today, can still do, they're empowered by our society to do many good things that contribute. Uh, and so the application is not the same. However, that having been said, there is an element of Paul's teaching that does apply to modern life. 
and I'd like to discuss that. In modern revelation, most active priesthood holders are familiar with the Council in Doctrine and Covenants, section 121, regarding unrighteous dominion, particularly for those who are called after the order of a priest. It is vital to understand that the master of this order, Jesus Christ, descended below all and humbled himself to serve. No man ought to think that this order of the priesthood entitles him to be served. It only empowers him to serve. That having been said, Unrighteous dominion is not a male-specific tendency. It is the nature and disposition of almost all people, regardless of gender, and even in modern times. As soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, to immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. Any person who believes that they deserve to be heard, or that they are owed an explanation, or suggest something that the church should do better, like they know better than the church, or that the prophet should be doing this. He, he could really make a difference if only he ran things the way that I see. These people are out of line, and regardless of their gender, they could benefit from learning in silence, male and female alike. This part that still applies is not reserved to just women. Everyone could do better by humbling themselves and following. Additionally, it is important to say that last section uh, in, in the controversial uh, bit in, in 1 Timothy that talks about women being saved in childbearing, it's important even today for men and women to remember the most important work that they can do is in the walls of their own home. Parents and children, husbands and wives, these relationships ought to be a higher priority than students and teachers, even at church. Improving the work of childbearing and raising, as well as any other task that is accompanying of family life is the goal of almost every council in the church. It's important we not get those mixed up. Ultimately, in the end, don't aspire to have great influence or authority or control over others. Use what God has given you in your own home Today, be wary of influences that would have you put your focus elsewhere. Undoubtedly, at times, this effort will be difficult. But God is not hoping to raise a coward. If you trust in him, he will help you find your courage. Next week, we will look at Hebrews chapters 1 through 6, discussing a little bit what it means to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Of course, we appreciate all the support for the Ward Preacher podcast and remind you to study the other elements 
of our Come Follow Me. There's a lot more in both epistles to Timothy, in Titus, and in Philemon. And as always, fight on.